Hey everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the BizCast. I'm Shannon King. So we took last week off to prepare for our Made in Connecticut Manufacturing Summit last Friday, and of course the election, which is on Tuesday. Uh, Before we start this episode, I want to raise a point of personal privilege. Uh, If any listeners out there follow me on social media, you've seen that I've recently got engaged. Uh, So I want to thank you all for your well wishes. I'm obviously very, very excited. And it's certainly a reminder that happiness can be found in the darkest of times. Uh, You just have to remember to turn the light on. Now, on to the episode. Last week, we hosted our Made in Connecticut Summit, where we had a variety of awesome speakers from the manufacturing industry and state government. Uh, This panel discussion that you'll be hearing was a review and a reaction to our 2020 manufacturing report, uh, in which we surveyed almost 400 manufacturers from around the state and asked them about how business has been this year, uh, where they hope to end 2020 in terms of profits and hiring, and what they've been doing to keep their employees safe. As you've been hearing on this pod since March, manufacturers were very quick to pivot and respond to COVID-19, from producing critical PPE to ramping up vaccine development and giving back to the community members in need, uh, certainly during the height of the pandemic. This panel was moderated by none other than Ari Santiago, president and CEO of IT Direct and host of the Made in America podcast, which I highly, highly recommend you add to your list. Ari was joined by Brian Montanari, president and CEO of Hapco Industries, also a friend of the pod, Robert Nowak, senior director of worldwide research and development of pharmaceutical sciences at Pfizer, who we know has been working diligently to develop a COVID-19 vaccine, Rena Patel, vice president of operations at RSCC Wire and Cable, and Graham Robinson, senior vice president and president of Stanley Industrial. As you can tell, this was a rock star panel, and they truly brought the report's data to life. So I hope everyone enjoys this episode, and I hope you are all staying safe out there. Good morning, panel. Thank you guys so much for jumping on. So our goal in the uh, panel this morning, and we'll get right into it, is to really talk about the state of manufacturing in Connecticut. CBIA released, and I think just linked, the uh, 2020 Manufacturing Survey. Uh, The report comes from data from many, many sources. For my money, most importantly, from a survey of manufacturers that occurred uh, over the middle to late part of the summer. So certainly deep into the the pandemic. Um, And just at some high levels, you'll see it in there. Uh, Current state of manufacturing, we're looking at just under 4,000 manufacturers here in the state with about 156,000 employees. Solid average wages actually up from 2019 at $98,000 a year on average, which is just tremendous. Uh, And the sector accounts for huge amount of economic activity, over $15 billion in exports and $15.2 billion in defense spending. Probably important to note that last year, 2019, was a record award in Connecticut with $37 billion billion with a B, uh, dollars of defense contracts awarded to Connecticut. We know those are multi-year. So just some tremendous work. And I think really importantly, and something the manufacturing sector should really be proud of, uh, especially in this time, that deep in the summer, the survey showed that 83% of manufacturers from an employment-based perspective were either growing or holding steady. And I think that's just absolutely uh, tremendous. So uh, let's get right into it. I guess I want to start, I don't want to spend too much time on the kind of COVID pandemic, but let's just get that out of the way. Uh, You know, Connecticut 
has had a very aggressive stance on controlling COVID. Uh, Chris alluded to it earlier. We kept manufacturing open, but we did close a lot of sectors. Uh, we've reopened in a, in a very controlled way and very monitored. Uh, maybe because of that, Connecticut's in the top half of uh, results when it comes to uh, economic bounce back, doing much better than many of our peer states and states we look at competitors, whether that's New York, New Jersey, the Carolinas, Texas, Florida, even some of the West Coast states. So let me throw it over to the panel and Brian, I'm gonna start with you. You know, what's your take on approaching kind of controlling COVID when it comes to the manufacturing environment? How do you run the balance of keeping people safe, which I think is a business imperative in addition to a health imperative while being able to meet customer demand? Yeah, thanks Ari and thanks CBIA for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, you know, Ari, you and I have talked about this topic quite a bit over the past six months. And for, for us at Habco, when, when the pandemic started to hit us, we set, a, set out with three, uh, with a mantra of three focuses, which is keeping our employees, customers, and suppliers safe, giving our, our employees the flexibility to take care of the home front and try to do that without missing uh, customer demand. And those come in conflict all the time. But for us and the executive team, what we talked about from day one is what we want for our families, what we implement for our spouses and for our kids and for our parents, we have to have that same mentality for our employees. You know, we're so thankful to have uh, manufacturing be essential from day one. That was great, but how do we how did how do we go about making sure all of our employees felt felt safe? And so for us, our perspective was what we would do for our families, we do for our employees. And has that been working? You've been able to maintain that level of safety and meet customer demand. Yeah, we have. You know, demand is always the the challenge. So of course, we have our operational challenges every day, but. We've been able to maintain a safe workforce. We, um, we, we put all the typical protocols in place early on and the overwhelming feedback we're getting from our employees is, okay, we're happy to come to work, but how do I know I don't have it if I'm asymptomatic and how do I know my coworker doesn't have it? So we started doing uh, COVID saliva tests back in early April and that's been one of the biggest things uh, that we did to help keep everybody safe. And we are finally at a point now where we actually Back on March 10th, we separated the entire workforce. If you don't touch product, you work at home. If you do touch product, we separate into two shifts. And I'm happy to say now, here we are, we have everybody back in the facility with the exception of one individual. And we, we had to get creative with, with special entrances and zones and everything to keep people safe. But um, I think from the health and safety side, we've done, we've done very well. But that conflict is there every day with uh, keeping those protocols in place and meeting customer demand. You know, fight the fight, fighting it with safety, information, and testing. Uh, really interesting. Hey, Rob, I'm going to throw a little bit to you. Um, just want to talk a little bit about what you guys have seen at Pfizer, both from a relationship of managing around COVID and in an environment and in an industry that maybe is benefiting uh, in some ways from the research and development on the COVID front. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that and to the degree you want to share uh, anything on the, uh, on the vaccine progress front, uh, certainly uh, feel, feel free. And if you've got a date or something super interesting, don't be afraid to break international news on the CBIA panel. Well, thanks for that. Um, yeah, so I would say sim similar to Brian, you know, we, we started out the, the first period of time was uh, very hectic in terms of defining uh, what, what uh, needed to be done and how do we uh, meet the, the state requirements. Uh, interaction with the governor's office was great and kind of getting the essential workforce please set up right away was was fantastic. Um, also fortunate, we've been extremely busy on the site in Groton with um, a very, very strong portfolio, um, as well as layering in 
COVID-19 support programs, and, and uh, there, there are folks on the site that support the vaccine piece as well. Um, in, in terms of the vaccine, uh, I, I, I can't really say anything more than uh, what, what Albert's published, our CEO has published in a letter last week on the 16th, um, that, that if all continues to go well in terms of effectiveness and safety, um, they're hoping to file, submit the manufacturing data the third week in November uh, for emergency authorization use. Um, and that letter I think is posted to the CBIA site as well as the Pfizer site. So it's, it's a really good read. And, and uh, I think Albert did a great job of summarizing where Pfizer's at, uh, what the approach is around effectiveness, safety, and manufacturing data, and, and Pfizer's commitment to um, uh, the, the, the pledge of making sure that uh, not only is it effective, but it's safe um, and follows the full FDA requirements. Well, that's, uh, that's fantastic. Thanks, Rob. Um, and I just want to add one thing that if for those people that want to have a question uh, asked, we are going to try and go through this panel and do some live Q&A, but feel free to ask questions throughout. There's a Q&A option in your Zoom, so you can kind of click on that and, and get any questions you want to ask. So I'm going to kind of turn the corner a little bit uh, on this and move to something else. You know, in the survey, uh, the majority of respondents cited proximity to customers, quality of life and skilled workforce as the major benefits they see from having their businesses in Connecticut. So I'm gonna to turn to our other two panelists and I'll start with you, Graham. Um, can you talk about how uh, any of those or all three of proximity to customers, quality of life or skilled workforce are a leverage advantage for Stanley and how you view uh, those benefits to benefit the Stanley's business and uh, growing it, which clearly is a business that spans more than just Connecticut. Yeah, thank you very much, Ari. And Thanks for having me here. It's a pleasure and honor to be on the panel to speak about something which is so important to our country, to Connecticut and to Stanley Black & Decker. All three that you mentioned are actually extremely critical to Stanley Black & Decker. If you think about our presence in the region in Connecticut spanning 175 years, it's one that has gone through thick and thin crisis, civil wars, pandemics, and has survived through and survived through primarily due to those three things that you mentioned and the ability to leverage them in Connecticut. And I'm a personal testament to it. I'm new to the region. I've been here for three months and I'm new to my role. I've been here for six months. And I'm here for primarily that reason in terms of the opportunity to take advantage of proximity to customers, in terms of the talent we have in the region and ability to recruit and use it as a leverage point to drive and grow the business. So I, I think that we have immense advantages here and things that we can leverage to drive scale and to drive improvements throughout the manufacturing sector. That's tremendous. Uh, I completely agree. Rena, can you maybe pick up on that same question? Talk about kind of RSCC and from your perspective, how that proximity to customers, quality in life and skilled workforce are driving value to your business. First, thank you, Ari, for having me on this panel um, and for CBIA as well. Uh, as Graham said, uh, all of those are important. I would say for RSCC, the availability of uh, skilled workforce and the quality of life are the major two major driving forces. Um, and the third one um, uh, didn't come to mind until I actually reviewed the report, and that has to do with the family and the roots. Uh, Graham mentioned Stanley has been around for 175 years. We've been around, uh, RSCC has been around for more than um, 100 years, 102nd year uh, for RSCC. So when you think about it, um, you know, I say 
uh, even now we have approximately, I would say about half of our workforce that has um, uh, been um, with RSCC for more than 15 years. Um, and if I look at 10 years, I mean, it would be like 70, uh, you know, percent. Not only that, uh, we have had uh, generational um, family members, uh, as well as the current family members working and, and friends. I think that the loyalty goes a long way. And, um, you know, I think it's showing as uh, part of the, the, the growth agenda uh, as we move forward uh, for Connecticut. It's tremendous. Uh, Sorry. And I, look, I'm going to ask another uh, question. Rob, I'm going to throw it back to you. You know, I think uh, maybe people on this panel don't fully appreciate, or people not on the panel, people on the audience, maybe don't fully appreciate the level of actually manufacturing that Pfizer uh, is doing uh, here in Connecticut. Certainly prior to our conversation, I thought it was more, you know, kind of R&D and, and, and sort of chemists. I know there is some of that, but can you talk a little bit about the advanced manufacturing and the automation that we're leaning into uh, in Pfizer um, and, and what that's doing uh, here in Connecticut from, a, from an engagement at a Pfizer perspective. Sure. Yeah. Although we're primarily a research site, we, we do uh, manufacture supplies for uh, clinical studies and, and have manufactured supplies for commercial material in the past. Um, one, one big part of enabling that kind of commercial supply is advanced manufacturing implementation. Mm -hmm. Um, so there's quite a bit of work going on in terms of continuous manufacturing um, as, as kind of one focus area, both in the drug product space, so the finished dosage forms that you'll, you'll see, tablets, capsules um, that uh, the, the consumer or patient takes, uh, as well as the uh, API and synthesis, uh, moving to flow chemistry and, and moving out of large batches to very, very small um, uh, flow reactors and, and really, really interesting work, but also um, you know, work that's all being done in Connecticut uh, from uh, you know, design of, uh, of the, the, the uh, actual equipment to, uh, uh, all the way through the, the scale up of the manufacturing processes. So it's a really exciting time in, 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 in terms of all of that and, and some great work and um, really have felt fortunate to be part of it, but it's also driven a, uh, a need for skilled workforces and um, the, the, the folks that we're hiring today are very different than the, the folks we were hiring 12 years ago um, and the upskilling and, and development and all that that goes with it. Um, so, um, Yes, yeah. tremendous. And, and, I, and I believe, I, I mean, can you, could you quote it back for me? Wasn't there some innovation you guys have had of the speed of creating a press pill that went from days to hours. Mm. I, I don't want to, I don't want to misquote or feed you too much, but I believe. Sure. I... Sure. Yeah. So the, uh, and, and a lot of this is on YouTube now too. So we, we did a initiative uh, started five years ago with uh, external collaboration with a, a few companies. Gaia is a, a equipment company and GCON that makes these modular pods. So facilities that can be moved and, and all mm. over the, the world. Um, and, and ultimately, we commercialized uh, uh, our first asset through that that process. Um, and uh, sorry, I lost the second part of the question. <laughs> oh, the pills! I just really quickly. Oh, yeah, so okay. so yeah. So we've we've moved from so with the the process analytics technology that that's that's been tied into the process. You can actually see the quality of the each individual dosage form as it's being manufactured. And that's enabled us to go from you know processes that take a week or more to processes that, that uh, you'll start seeing powders to to final tablets in ten minutes. 
That's a that's a that's a pretty impressive innovation. I think that's the level of automation and innovation uh, that Connecticut needs to lean into. And we've been talking about for a long time, sort of the future of automation, which is certainly in the report. And I think on that, I'm going to kind of go back to Graham. I know, Graham, you've got a, a passion for advanced manufacturing for Industry 4.0. Maybe talk a little bit about Stanley's lean into that, uh, where Connecticut is connected to that and how you see uh, enhanced automation as the future of manufacturing, both in Connecticut and possibly globally. Thank you very much, Ari. I think if you look at my background virtually as to where I'm broadcasting from, which is the manufacturer 4.0. And if you think about where Chris's physical background is, which is the Makerspace CT, both 25,000 square foot facilities, probably 250 feet apart. And if you think about the symbolic element of it in terms of the intersection between public and private partnerships, and the need to leverage both and the need to utilize industry 4.0 to drive growth. And both institutions and both places help to seek and to facilitate that. And we at Stanley Black & Decker have a very, very strong and rich history in it and a strong advocacy for it, which is why we formed this manufacturer about a year and a half ago, which is why it's used to drive innovation for industry 4.0 within inside Stanley Black & Decker and then in the future, outside Stanley Black & Decker to serve the community. We certainly believe that if you think about the changes that have taken place with the pandemic, one of them is certainly going to be reshoring. There's certainly going to be the need to do more with less, as there always has been with manufacturing. But the need to do it locally, the need to do it in your environment, the need for us to equip our institutions and our manufacturing facilities to drive and operate more efficiently using Industry 4.0. And there's no doubt about that. The only question is how do we get there and how do we get there quickly? And we believe that we have a strong role to play in it. And we believe that institutions and the partnerships between CBIA and us and others can help to facilitate that also. That's great. And I'm going to uh, throw something to you, Brian. Brian, you know, uh, some people are optimists, some people are pessimists, you know, the proverbial glass half full, glass half empty. Uh, and from your perspective, being kind of the aerospace person on the panel, talk a little bit about, you know, your perspective kind of on aerospace manufacturing, what you see the, the path forward, and kind of how, what you're, how you guys are guiding it uh, at HABCO. Yeah, thanks. You know, there's no doubt that the aerospace industry, especially on the commercial side, has been impacted. I know we 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 update our uh, our business plan every year in January. We're writing our business plan, and there's so much uh, about the commercial aerospace industry that we were that we were focused on, and you know how quickly that changes over the course of six months. Um, and it, you know, it's sad. I've, I have had the opportunity to fly um, recently, and as you're walking through O'Hare Airport at 7:30 at night, seeing it like a ghost town is, uh, yeah. you know, it is sad. Um, the you know the military side has been very strong, but I think from a from a commercial perspective, you know, everything we're seeing is it will come back, but it's not going to come back quickly. There are a lot of things that have to be in place. Um, but from from a business perspective, we have to stay focused on on our operations and coming through this stronger than we went into it because there are a lot of companies who unfortunately aren't making it through this. I see a lot of companies that were so focused 100% commercial. Uh, and so there be, creates opportunities for those businesses that come out stronger. Um, but at, at the end of the day, the, uh, the industry is impacted, you know, have codes business on the, on the commercial side, uh, you know, it just forces us to partner with our customers a little bit differently. And we each have to have patience with each other. 
Yeah, no question about that. Um, Rena, can you talk a little bit about, you know, RSCC does a lot of pretty heavy duty cable, especially in, you know, transportation and infrastructure uh, investment. Um, what are, what, what is the pandemic doing to RSCC from a business standpoint? And how are you guys looking to chart the path forward? Wow. Um, I, um, as, um, as you heard from Brian and uh, others as well, um, um, as for the transportation, um, you know, things um, from the aerospace perspective, of course, um, uh, is down, but we were still uh, doing pretty well. Uh, for part of the, the, the COVID or uh, through the COVID months, um, um, because our uh, uh, because our cables went into other things other than um, you know just the airport transportation, if you will. Uh, of course, we would like to uh, get more of that uh, business back for the cars and other things. Uh, but you know what? We are waiting for that infrastructure investment. Uh, if Connecticut, uh, Connecticut can go through that and we get more mass transit, uh, I think it would be not only, uh, of course, we are expecting some business through that uh, uh, for our business. Um, what I think is going to hurt us is uh, if we don't get uh, the infrastructure bills passed or uh, uh, federal and state uh, support on uh, on an infrastructure level. Uh, as long as we get that, I believe that, um, you know, right now we're, we're somewhat stable. Of course, we want to continue to grow and, um, you know, uh, stable and low. Uh, so we want to continue to grow. Uh, the resurgency is sharing uh, another level of uncertainty, if you will. Uh, so from that perspective, of course, uh, you know, the, the aerospace industry and others are impacted uh, along with us uh, from, from transit standpoint. So I'm going to talk about, and I'm going to go around the entire panel on this kind of workforce and recruiting perspective. And Rob, I'm going to, I'm going to start with you. Um, what are you guys seeing? I mean, we, we know that prior looking, especially to go back to the 2019 survey, you know, workforce and recruiting, finding, you know, qualified talent was everyone's number one uh, challenge, kind of looking at that growth demand. Certainly in some ways that demand outlook has changed, but whether it's the silver tsunami just replacing or possibly in some cases, we are growing and need to lean in. Can you talk a little bit about Pfizer's perspective from where you sit in terms of the demand for, uh, you know, skilled workers and what you guys are doing, you know, to fill that? And if the current environment is either hindering uh, or helping uh, kind of you'd recruit what you need to recruit. So overall kind of recruiting outlook and, and state of uh, fulfilling it. Okay. Yeah. So I would say overall uh, we're fairly stable on the site in, in Groton with about uh, 5,300 uh, folks on the site. We have had some attrition and some new hiring uh, in, during the pandemic. Um, the need for, you know, advanced skill sets, uh, kind of digitally focused, we're, we're constantly evolving in, in, in that way on our kind of digital transformation journey as well. Um, so there is a, a, a need for different sort of talents and skill sets as we um, hire due to attrition and, and, and backfilling. Um, I would say that during the pandemic, uh, my my group has actually hired the most that we've ever hired um, in, in kind of a cohort, and we've probably had the best recruiting class we've ever had as well. So um, we've brought engineers in from all over the U.S. as well as from from UConn. Um, really, really excited about uh, the, the the team and the the, the uh, skill sets that we're seeing and and how quickly. Um, folks have come up to speed and, and, and made contributions to the organization. 
Um, so I think you know we'll con we'll continue down that path, and I, I actually think that I mean Pfizer's probably benefited from the pandemic in some regards. That um, we have a very strong portfolio, a lot of work going on, and then a, a great interest in the work that we're doing, uh, you know, within the state, within the the country, and globally. Um, and that's that's uh, really transpired into to very high level recruiting. People want people want to be on that team to find that vaccine, right? Uh, Rena, talk a little bit about from your perspective. Uh, same same question. You know, what are you seeing from the ability to uh, recruit in general? What's the outlook, and and has this environment helped, hurt, or not made a difference? Um, so, from a business standpoint, um, um, I would say mid um, uh, COVID times to you know uh, um, going forward. What we're doing is uh, literally um, uh, minimizing the impact, and that may be, um, you know, through not filling any um, open positions that um, were there through natural attrition. Uh, we've flexed our workforce. Um, literally, we are um, continuing uh, our teams to train um, and cross-train and cross-train uh, so that we have backups to the backups to the back backups. And we're basically um, getting ready uh, for uh, the, the business, uh, the growth uh, that we're looking for. So being stable is not uh, sufficient, as you know. Um, also, uh, we've talked a lot about uh, upskilling the workforce. Uh, that becomes absolutely a fundamental um, need for any business as you uh, think about uh, getting more of, um, um, you know, manufacturing concepts or uh, industry 4.0 um, uh, levels. So, of course, uh, we, we are taking on this opportunity to prepare uh, our business uh, for, for the growth. And Graham, we'll turn turn that to you. What are you seeing? Uh, obviously, new on the scene. Uh, I know you're building a new team and, and kind of launching some new stuff at Stanley. What are you seeing from uh, your need to recruit and uh, kind of the impact right now? Well, I, I, we see the need to recruit as being as strong as ever, quite frankly. Um, it's it's changing. It's changing in terms of the, the skills that are needed for the people that you're you're looking to get. And you know, you, you go from one paradigm to the other. I mean, you have the, the table stakes of keeping your employees safe and their families safe mm -hmm. and getting them to the office. And then to the other extreme of, of bringing in high-skilled people to drive the latest in technology with artificial intelligence and otherwise, that's really needed for the next set of technologies for manufacturing. And the current environment actually does both. It hurts and helps. I mean, it, it, it helps in the, in the context that you know, we, we can be much more flexible compared to where we were before. Mm -hmm. And before you had to be physically in that site, right beside that site in order to be hired, we can have a bit more flexibility. You could be a couple hundred miles away. You could be in a different part of the state. You could even be outside of the state and then use the state to recruit the person in the state at a later stage. And then it hurts in the context that demand is as great as ever for those top skilled people. I mean, the demand is through the roof. And if you're hiring someone in the, and they don't have another offer, you're probably not hiring the right person. <laughs> so, they, so, so, so what you're seeing now is, is a, a really a fight for talent, a fight for the, the top talent. So, you know, on, on both sides, the game needs to be stepped up. Are you guys finding uh, any particular techniques or offerings or anything you're leaning into to try and, uh, you know, lure them to, to what you're doing? Sure. Sure, well, I mean, I try to use myself as an example. I'm here because I, I believe in 
certainly Stanley Black and Decker, I believe in our vision, I believe in the, the state and I physically moved here in the middle of the pandemic for that primary reason. Um, so that certainly helps from a recruiting perspective. But when you have a you know over 175 year history commitment to the state, a commitment to manufacturing and the, the physical present that you see here, that certainly helps in terms of ensuring that you can bring in the brightest and the best. Um, and we use that throughout, but certainly being much more flexible is important. Not flexibility yeah. on talent, but flexibility in some of the other aspects of it. Um, the other thing that we did earlier on is we, we actually ensured that you know, not just our employees had access to PPE, their families had access to PPE, their families had access to the best care, because that's what people are thinking about when they're working from home. So going above and beyond the call, showing empathy in all aspects of what we do. That's a really, really great point. And I know something, Brian, that that's uh, an approach you guys have taken. So just uh, on the last part of the panel on the same question, Brian, what are you seeing from a need to recruit and uh, challenges and opportunities you're seeing right now? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I'll echo what some of the comments that Graham just had. I know if I look back at my 14 years here at Habco, when I started, we were a 20 person organization. We grew to about 100 employees and we onboarded 42 new employees in 2019. So workforce development, that entire process and Connecticut is a great place, but it's also a challenging place. My biggest customers in state are also my biggest competitors for labor. You know, it, my suppliers are competitors for laborers. My competitors are competitors for labor. So how do we go about that process and do it the right way? I'm tired of trying to steal from, you know, from, from other companies. So it's what, what I see in the state, especially recently has been fantastic. You know, the, the Connecticut Workforce Development Unit, and I, Kelly Marie being a part of that is fantastic. There's a lot of things that are, that are moving in the right direction. Uh, and so, you know, for us, I agree with Graham, you know, the amount of folks that we're going off trying to recruit that already have other offers, that's fantastic, right? But when we're competing against a much larger company, that also drives our costs up. And what we need to do from a benefits perspective as a small business to be able to attract employees, we have to sell the benefits of small business. We have to sell the benefits of what we do. And I've seen time and time again, folks that we've hired or, or, or grown throughout the, throughout the organization and train them and they've got great skill sets and they get recruited to leave. And so that's a, that's a daily challenge we deal with. But I agree right now, especially during the pandemic, even though um, business is down, it, re, it, it forces that re, retention and the training to be even, even more important. And in the development of the, the, the healthy workplace organization, because we want to make our employees feel healthy and feel safe here. The moment they, they don't feel safe, but yet they can look outside somewhere else and try to go uh, and probably get hired somewhere else because of all the skilled labor we have uh, becomes attractive for them. So balancing all of that in the state is a challenge, but it's also a great state to do it in because of the wealth of, of skill and talent and what the state is starting to do now and has been doing for a bit now with uh, incentivizing and helping businesses train and retain. So I think we can all agree. Thanks, Brian. I think we can all agree 2020 has been a year that's given us plenty of lemons. Uh, and I don't know about you guys, but growing up, my mom always told me when life gives you lemons, you got to make some lemonade. So I'd like to maybe go down the panel and, and ask you guys if you could maybe think of one kind of lemonade opportunity, one, one kind of gem uh, that you've been able to find this year uh, that you're saying, you know, th this pandemic, this kind of challenging year on different fronts 
has brought a lot of problems, but you know, we've identified this one thing or it brought to light this one opportunity. Um, it brought to light the flexibility of remote workforce. It brought us more together as a family, Wh whatever that is. I wonder if maybe you guys could each kind of share, you know, one gem that, that people listening might be able to, to take away. Um, I'll either volunteer or if no one wants to volunteer, I'm gonna volunteer someone to start. So anybody wanna jump in? Rena, go ahead. Um, so I, uh, I just wanted to go back. Uh, there was a question before where we talked about uh, uh, the employee safety and our workforce safety and so on. Um, I think one of the things that um, uh, we found was uh, creating that uh, safe space. And safe space didn't mean just uh, keeping them safe uh, with the PPE and other things, but it was physical safety as well as mental safety. There was a lot of anxiety. There was a lot of, um, um, and uh, we worked a, a, a great deal on that. And I'm sure the, pan, uh, the panel, uh, the panelists worked uh, on that as well. I just wanted to make sure that um, you know both are are considered because. Uh, both are as, as equally important in, uh, from, from my perspective. It considers both the lives as well as the livelihood uh, of our team. Uh, so now I'll switch on to uh, the gem. Uh, so early on uh, during the pandemic, I recognized that uh, our crisis management framework was not adequate uh, to respond to the COVID-19 crisis. And I, I don't know if anyone can say that theirs was, uh, but yet um, uh, I worked in collaboration with um, uh, HR and other uh, team members. Uh, we came up with a, a dynamic and agile uh, framework. Um, so yes, of course, you know, when you think about resurgence and other things, uh, it, it will um, uh, and how um, uh, come, it will be, uh, it will keep us prepared, I should say, uh, for any resurgency or anything else that may come along. Uh, so in parallel, um, I collaborated with the business team um, to incorporate our customer and supply chain uh, resiliency uh, to ensure the, the business continuity. Um, those two came to mind at first, uh, but as we went through uh, the modifications and all that, the more and more um, um, that came to forefront is that um, the, the, the biggest thing we learned was only the change was constant. Um, and that's what we really needed to prepare for. Uh, so I'll, I'll leave you with this, uh, the, you know, therefore the change management and uh, the uh, continuous learning are at uh, top of our list um, uh, in our cultural evolution, or I don't know at this point, maybe I shall say revolution, mm -hmm. uh, considering what we're going through. So really getting the advantage of people being open to leaning in and change, right? Of course, mother, the necessity being the mother of invention, all of a sudden, all things seem possible and we can embrace a change. That's a great thing to take advantage of. It's hard to get organizations to get behind change and getting people behind a change is probably the most important predictor of the success of that change, uh, possibly in some cases, even more than the idea itself. So using this pandemic to drive change, it's a great, uh, that's a great gem. And I think a great opportunity uh, that we can find out here. Who wants to go? Uh, who wants to go next? Well, I'll go next. Yeah. If you allow me just to, to mention two, one more personal, one professional. Personal in the context that I started work at Stanley Black & Decker on April the 6th of this year. Based in Dallas, Texas, a new division in the middle of the pandemic in automotive end markets. Um, and it was last week that I met my team for the first time face to face. 
or in person. Uh, and you can imagine running a business, navigating the business in the context where you are all remote and never met anyone before. So the personal level has certainly taught me dramatically new skills in terms of engaging with teams, showing empathy, doing it all remote at the same time. And, and that's certainly things that I will not forget and will help me throughout. On the professional perspective though, in terms of the business, we really thought it was an opportunity to not let a crisis go to waste, so to speak. So we, we, we tried to do the two seemingly conflicting things. One, which is manage the business near term with the end markets being down 10 to 20% and at the same time, plant seeds for the future. So we planted seeds and we planted seeds by leveraging some of the things that we did, which is really industry 4.0 and coming out with offerings to provide our services to other industrial companies, other industrial companies that can use it as a platform to help to navigate the crisis, to help to introduce industry 4.0. So we started and planted seeds for more of a, a service-based business where we can provide services to other manufacturing companies, similar to what we do internally. And that's probably not something we'd have done without the crisis. It is probably not. Mm. And the crisis allowed us to drive and accelerate change. The crisis allowed us to do things that we'd never have done in a completely different way and to move with speed, with speed and urgency. So, you know, there's always a bright side to things and that's certainly a big bright side that we had from it. No doubt about it, and especially in larger organizations where uh, moving with speed and efficiency can sometimes be a challenge. Uh, so if a, if a pandemic can uh, grease the wheels, as it were, uh, I, I love that. Don't let a good, uh, don't let a good crisis go to waste. Uh, hey, Brian, you want to you wanna pick up on that? And then, Rob, you're up next. Pick up, sure. on Brian, maybe on your kind of nugget. Yeah, sure. And I'll, I'll follow Graham and, and talk about one on personal front and business front, because I think the personal front was was uh, you know kind of a blessing in disguise. We all we all struggle with work life balance and and balancing all the schedules. So the amount of family dinners we had, the amount of time we got to spend together, especially before one of my one of my daughters uh, moved moved away this year. Um, and I also found out I was a better TikTok dancer than I thought I would be. <laughs> well, I don't know. I, I mean, I, I don't know if that's objectively true, Brian. That's, I don't know if that's. Yeah, on a, on a professional side, you know, we're we're an organization, and I'm a manager that likes to be with employees. And the amount of gamble walks we do, the amount of all hands meetings we do, the amount of cornhole tournaments and cook, cooking, that's that was you know a really difficult time for us to be separate and not be able to be together. So one of the gems that I think we came up with was uh, the development of a YouTube channel that we put videos out and send out to the entire uh, company to be able to keep everybody informed, not just on a Habco perspective, but on a state and uh, and country perspective. Um, but the other thing that I really enjoyed, um, you know, Habco, we, you know, we were, we had a lot of business that we needed to be focused on in that period of time. So we weren't really able to pivot and help out on a greater scale, whether it's from a PPE perspective or ventilators or anything like that. But I really enjoyed how I saw the state and I saw folks and especially us here help other companies out, you know, friends, you know, Gilman brothers had an opportunity with the, with the, with the beds they were going to make and connecting them with Colin in the States. It's, to get the state some more beds, that connection, uh, even amongst competitors, was really interesting to watch and see how everybody was helping each other out. You know, and, and I think the pivot for us, the gem now, um, you know, I never thought I'd be ha having so many conversations associated to saliva samples and biohazard bags in an aerospace company, but we helped a lot of companies stand up a testing program so they can test their employees and. Through that, it's now we're getting a lot of pull to be able to actually provide that as a service. So we've been 
you know, been approved to actually help companies and do the testing for them. Because I think, you know, especially as we come here into this cold and flu season, uh, testing is going to become even more critical than it has in the past. Uh, so, you know, the pivots, um, as much as we'd love to help out in other industries, uh, I think just helping each other out was probably one of the biggest gems I saw seeing the state come together. You know, the traffic that went on the CBIA's website and Concept's website over the last six months was was just uh, was re was record breaking, and to see the state come together was was really nice. Yeah, definitely stronger together. Uh, I'm going to touch on that actually in a second. So, Rob, uh, let's still throw it to you. Uh, what gems do you have? What uh, what taking advantage of a crisis uh, have you seen? Yeah, probably. So, on a personal level, it's uh, you know. Um, real blessing if uh, I have an oldest son who's a junior in college that we thought was kind of off in the wind after uh, the, the, you know he graduates but so he came home spent six months with us we had family dinners for the first time in three or four years together it was really a great great time we you know, kind of spent six months as a family um, and then personally for on a work front that I'm about 50% on site um, the, the group I run is, is essential, but we've been able to kind of really ring fence key people that need to be there. Um, so I, I, you know, I'm still have the benefit of, of being energized by getting to interact with folks a couple times a week and, and then go off and, and do a bunch of work when I'm, when I'm not there. Um, and that's, you know, so I've still had that, that kind of personal interaction energy, which I'm really thankful for. Um, you know, as a site, we're probably still 80% remote. Um, so I think the real blessing for, for us has been um, the change management curve, as, as Rena and Graham Bryan all alluded to, is that, that uh, you know, I, I would say we, we've done, we've redeveloped some processes to be fully digital in, in a week's time that, you know, we, we kind of had chartered to, to, for the next six months to 12 month kind of programs, um, you know, and, and really setting up, you know, based on safety, based on um, what we need to get done, what the work that's in front of us, how do we keep folks remote that, that can operate remote and how do we support the people that absolutely need to be there? So, um, you know, digitalization in terms of remote support areas, um, simple digital uh, investments to allow for uh, paper processes and sign digital signatures and those sort of things to go through and then more investment in kind of our, uh, our digital transformation processes um, kind of emphasized through through the the, the the process and you know ultimately um, again still stage three and, and have the majority of the folks on site remote um, and we do have some labs working double shifts and have, have done different things to to make sure that we're productive but the productivity you know across groups is is been maintained if not increased in in, in many areas that's great. Um, so we're going to, we got some questions coming in, so keep them coming. I've, I've worked some in and, and we'll work the rest in uh, as we go forward. Um, you know, I, I do like to keep us kind of on a, on a positive track, but I want to acknowledge that one of the, you know, one of the feedbacks we got out of this survey was, um, you know, government regulation um, and, and kind of not moving, maybe uh, some of those challenges to, to manufacturing businesses here in Connecticut, some cited federal, many cited state. Uh, I just wonder if anyone wants to tackle really quickly, you know, your view on sort of the, you know, the regulatory or the, the government kind of environment and what you're doing either to, uh, to mitigate or, or not noticing it or, or kind of what you're doing about it. So I'll let uh, anybody who wants to jump in on that. If you don't jump, I'm picking. All right, Brian, that's you. Yeah, I figured as much, Ari. Thanks. Um, you know, so 
look, I think we, I think I saw something come out this morning in what, in one of the articles that Connecticut is what 47th uh, in the country for business tax climate or something, uh, something similar. So, you know, I think there are a lot of challenges that that businesses in the state um, are against. You know, it, it's a great state to work in, but it's a it's a big challenge, and so we have to continue to find ways to operate with within those within those regulations. You know, you look at CMMC and all these other things that are coming that are here that we have to continue to invest in in order to stay competitive, but also to be able to stay in business uh, for for the uh, for those for those customers. So. And when we look at the private-public partnerships and the opportunities, I think that's an area where I think the more, like the Connecticut Manufacturer Collaborative, all the different organizations coming together to help the businesses navigate through that. Education is one thing, but implementation is a, is, is a completely other thing. Go ahead, Rena. How do you how do you think about kind of regulatory environment, um, and and how do you work uh, through that? I think you might be on mute, so just check that real quick. Yeah, thank you. Um, so, um, you know what, Ari, uh, when you look at regulations and, and fiscal uncertainty, for us, our biggest challenge is fiscal uncertainty um, because it causes a lot of pressure um, and um, having for us uh, to strike the right balance uh, between the investments for the current um, uh, running the current business uh, needs versus um, looking out for future opportunities. So um, uh, from that perspective, it, it does cause, um, it is it has been a biggest challenge. Um, I, I would echo Brian's sentiment around um, um, overall uh, business taxation and also uh, literally extremely lenient uh, labor laws um, are hindrance to our competitiveness. Uh, if you think about workmen's comp and uh, other um, you know, specific regulations um, that are, um, you know, really um, hurting our uh, competitiveness. Yeah, so we got to work together, I think, to do that. And, and let me kind of pivot a little bit here, which is CBIA is leaning very heavily uh, into collaboration and partnerships. We've been seeing that for a while, whether it's the alliance with Constep, the launch of the CMC, just to name a few. Um, and I think under, you know, even more now talking about partnerships and collaboration in business. And so, Graham, I'm going to start with you. And I wonder if maybe you could talk about what you see as the business value and best value businesses get by banding together to drive better results for the group and individually? I think it's it's just critical. I mean, there's, there's actually probably, it just becomes so much difficult without. I mean, if you, if you listen to what the, you know, both Rena and Brian said in terms of regulation, high taxation, you could add to that the educational environment in which, you know, for us to succeed, we not just have to do it fast. So in terms of, you know, simplifying regulation and speed of approvals, but we have to do it right. And in order to do it right, we have to get the right set of talent in the organizations at the right time. And talent is in general a function of the infrastructure that provides it. And the educational system is key for that. And the extent to which we can partner and we can collaborate between us to help to facilitate that. And we at Stanley have a strong and rich history in that and we'll continue to do that. But we need to ensure that we get the graduates who have the right skills for the future. I mean, not the skills of today, the skills of the future. And you know, institutions like this, institutions and otherwise that help to facilitate that. And the extent to which we partner to do that is absolutely critical for our success going forward. 
I agree with that. And Rob, I'm going to maybe pivot off of that a little bit and just ask you, you know, uh, if we gave if if, uh, if if we gave you the magic wand, what would you like to see in terms of that specific education change? Uh, you know, I'm a big believer in that. I, for whatever reason, education seems to be stuck in the mid 20th century, uh, maybe in terms of what we teach to some degree and how we teach it. Um, uh, I'm supposed to moderate, not share views probably on this panel, but there we go. Uh, point, of pro point of privilege there. Uh, so maybe Rob, talk a little bit about, you know, we just made you, uh, you know, king of the world for education. What do you think we should be thinking about in terms of how and what we should be educating the workforce of the future to get people who can participate, not just in the R&D at, at, at uh, Pfizer, but also in the advanced manufacturing you guys are doing. You touched on some amazing stuff down there. What are you looking for? What do you think we need? Yeah, and I, I think um, I, I would, uh, uh, I guess one of the things, so we're a global company. Uh, we do a lot of work. We have a sister site in, in England and always really been amazed at, you know, England's approach as a small country to um, the apprenticeship programs and technical programs, uh, mm -hmm. bo both from a, uh, how they put uh, people in technical career tracks into the workforce in, in their high school years, uh, as well as these uh, uh college uh, uh, apprenticeships, um, technical apprenticeships, even technical uh, PhD programs, which we don't really have in the US where they're very applied uh, a PhD as opposed to uh, theoretical. Um, and I think it, it's brought a tremendous value to Pfizer over the years. So you know, they're constantly running uh, 10 to 20 of, of, of these types of things or more at, at the, the sites. And uh, it's win-win it's um, for, for the, the public-private partnership. Um, and it's just been, you know, it's something that is, as we've looked at over the years, a strong desire to do more with and, and kind of how do we connect up at a state level to do that. Um, but that kind of encompasses uh, a lot of those different things, right? So how do we incorporate more technology and, and structure and then the interaction with actually the businesses are changing so rapidly. How do you give people exposure to that um, and, and not have it kind of just be the, the, the kind of uh, dynamics that are typical in an education program. I can, yeah, listen, I'm so on board with that, you know, that applied learning. And I think, you know, we, there's a lot of talk about public-private partnerships. And I think you hit on something that's really uh, an imperative, which is not trying to figure out how the educational institutions can like learn everything that they need to learn to teach everyone as things change so quickly, but use that private partnership, use the education to teach how to think and what to, how to approach things. And then the private side to get in there and get that applied learning. I, I think that's super powerful. If we could lean into that, in Connecticut continue to raise the stakes on our ability to drive workforce uh, forward. I'm going to turn to Brian and Rena on a kind of an offshoot of that workforce development, which is thinking about how you're looking at workforce recruitment, upskilling, and apprenticeships. How has your approach to any of those items, workforce development, upskilling, and apprenticeships, changed during COVID? Uh, Rena, let me start with you, and then Brian, I'll come to you right behind that. You know, how has it changed in this pandemic, leaning into that that work, that workforce development and, and apprenticeship specifically. I, you know what they say, necessity is mother of invention. So, <laughs> um, uh, needless to say, it became extremely agile but dynamic. Uh, we literally um, uh, trained our team members from each other, um, and uh, um, you know, from an apprenticeship perspective, uh, we have uh, some of the team members who already were there. So basically there was a mentorship program um, uh, of sort that we created 
um, and they worked along alongside with them. Uh, so that's how we are tackling at the moment. Um, we have such specific needs also that even if they come uh, learned, we would have to still train them in house. Uh, so again, we took the opportunity, um, you know, took our uh, onboarding program to the next level, if you will. Uh, onboarding is in uh, for even if you're looking at any other um, uh, position or training. Um, and we searched. Uh, we we are uh, also on LinkedIn learning. Um, we uh, facilitated with um, several of our Marmon sites, if you will. Um, and uh, so there, there were several different uh, things we did other than just at this specific location. Collaborate, lean into technology, absolutely terrific. And I think you referenced kind of you're part of a larger group, so you have that. When I think CBIA uh, and other organizations, whether it's CMC or ACM or EMA or uh, Manufacturer CT, for smaller organizations can lean into those groups to kind of get some peer learning across sites. Um, so Brian, what about you? What are you seeing different in terms of workforce development and apprenticeships in this environment? Yeah, I mean, certainly when you look at social distancing and all of the all of the protocols that we have to put in place when you're trying to train em employees or you, we have apprentices internal and you want, you know, typically you've got everybody side by side working hand in hand and trying to do that with social proper social distancing was a huge challenge. And, and you know, we had engineers working from home who would typically be on the shop floor with folks The tech that that gap was really difficult. You know, you, there's only so much you could do on your cell phone with the zoom and, and everything else to try to train. So, you know, we, we, we've, you know, I'm not saying we've done this great yet, but we're trying to look at how, what other things could we do? We're actually looking at implementing some augmented reality uh, technology. So you can have that hands-free be working, but see on the glasses, see on the, on the tablet, what, what knob you should be turning or where you should be laying that bead or what, what you should be doing. And I think that's a piece that I think will be with us for a while and be, you know, similar to what Rena talked about, you know, I don't think we would have been looking at some of this technology if it wasn't for the pandemic. And I think we'll be a much better company for it. It's going to allow us to send, um, you know, maybe some tech uh, technicians or engineers who are not as experienced as others out on the road to go service our product, but have technology where somebody who has the experience could be helping them through it. So I think that's an area for us that I'm excited about jumping into. I appreciate that. And for folks out there, keep the questions coming. I have been working them in. Uh, so if you've got more, you know, keep them on there. Uh, I, I'm really big believer, uh, Brian, uh, as you probably can imagine, owning a technology company, but big believer in technology, especially IT. The the rapid pace of innovation and adoption, really, I think has been impressive during the pandemic. And I, I do believe it will be here to stay. And I think the companies that lean in, like you guys have all been talking about, are the ones that are going to be the winners. Uh, I think it's, it's not just that, you know, it's also, and people have mentioned, LinkedIn learning, I think we're hearing, and this has been on the podcast, is people are leaning into understanding that in the 21st century, marketing and sales has got to be different too. And now before where people kind of were leaning on the, the old method of kind of knocking on doors and showing up with a, with a kit of your product and now learning how to make, I mean, we've heard YouTube from a number of different, uh, I think everyone has mentioned YouTube in one way or another, but leaning into that and, and kind of driving that forward, I think is uh, something we're seeing and the companies that are doing that are really going to be uh, thriving into the future. And I think that kind of dovetails to another interesting question, which is, and Graham, I'm going to throw this to you. What do you see as the role government might have and the partnership might have in the intersection between people and technology and how that plays into what we're doing right now with the pandemic and going forward? 
Well, I, I, you know, I, I think the role is critical. I think it's it, it's it's central to driving and accelerating everything that we're speaking about. It, it's central in terms of putting in place processes that allow for faster approvals. Um, we saw that take place presently um, historically through the COVID crisis, where you know there was a faster approval for many of the different technologies or PPE or manufacturing. We need that to extend. We need it to continue. We need it to continue so that we can facilitate innovation throughout. And we spoke about education. I mean, that is absolutely central in terms of the role of government. Um, and you know, we, you, you, we don't get to do one or the other. We don't get to just do this in the crisis and forget about it. We don't get to just do one in terms of the, the faster approvals and not do education. We have to do both because both are absolutely central for our success. So I, I, I view the role of, of government as as one that helps to enable businesses, helps to accelerate progress. And while their role is central, we do it with a partnership. We do it in cases where we can do put together public-private partnerships. But the role of government is, needs to be very, very strong in helping and enabling companies like ours and smaller companies to take advantage of the changes that have taken place in the marketplace due to the pandemic. So we got to only have a few more minutes left. Uh, there's a question uh, that was about uh, what manufacturers are looking at from a legislation passed um, to help reduce obstacles in business. And I'm going to answer that question in kind of a different way, you know, which is, and, and Chris had mentioned it, the CBIA pledge. And I think CBIA has really taken a new approach this year to really focus in on a small number of actionable items that could really make a difference. And they're really across five areas, right? It's workforce development, urban renewal, infrastructure investment, small business relief, and taxpayer return on investment. Uh, I think everyone on this group could probably agree those five areas, if we can make progress in those areas, boy, that's going to make uh, a big impact. And if people haven't looked at the pledge, uh, definitely, uh, as Chris did, encourage you to get on there uh, to sign up for it. We've talked a lot about here. We're going to be stronger together. The businesses have to band together. We have to talk with one voice. The CMC really shows the power of that one voice and what it can do to make positive change. Uh, we're starting to see some things. Colin's doing a great job. We see investment in workforce, the Transfer Act change. Probably a lot of us think it was a little bit too late, but you know, better late than never uh, is what I always say, and it's here now. So let's enjoy the win and, and keep moving forward. So I want to go back to the panel, and in the next, I, hopefully we can do this in three minutes. Um, can you talk about those five areas, workforce development, urban renewal, infrastructure investment, small business relief, and, and taxpayer ROI, and maybe pick one uh, and talk about which one's kind of nearest and dearest to your heart that you think will uh, would really make a, a positive difference uh, in the in the environment here in Connecticut. Uh, we're going to go, uh, I'll call it backwards down the number line. So Rob, you're up first. Yeah, so we've talked a lot about workforce development, and I, I think that's probably the, the biggest one for us. I think the, um, you know, in, in terms of what we're focused on at, at Pfizer, equity is also a, a, a big um, item issue, something we want to, to tackle. And to me, that kind of fits in with with item two in terms of urban renewal and how do we do uh, a very inclusive, diverse workforce and 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 provide equity in in, in many different um, ways, and and they're intertwined, uh, quite frankly. Um, but it's so how do you know how do we continue to grow a, a workforce? How do we do the right thing for um, uh, the communities that we live in, um, for for public health and um, uh, you know, it, it, it develop uh, the, the 
in the, the locations that we're at. I totally agree with that, Rob. And uh, I'll even d dump one on top of that, which is, you know, part of the challenges with the urban renewal and the, and the uh, equity for, for folks that live there is when manufacturing moved out of downtown and into urban industrial, uh, suburban industrial parks, the ability to get people from the urban centers out is a challenge. And so infrastructure investment and transportation uh, can get there. And we certainly shouldn't uh, confuse uh, education with intelligence. We got to invest in those uh, inner cities and, and make sure that we're taking advantage of the talent there because we workforce development's key. Uh, Rena, what do you got? We got those five items. What do you see as uh, the most important? Definitely infrastructure investment. Uh, I spoke about it a little bit before. Um, any investment in mass transit, uh, uh, we're expecting, of course, um, that would entail some business for us. Uh, so even if uh, travel is less and airports are not using the cars, you know, if there are other sorts of transportation uh, that we can um, uh, bank on, that would be terrific. Uh, secondly, I, I believe that it would help uh, revitalize the economy and uh, would lessen the tax burden. Um, I'm not going to go over workforce development because I, I knew that that's just a key need for, for all of us. No, I like that infrastructure investment being critical. We got to be able to move goods and people uh, from place to place. And infrastructure is not just roads, trains. It's also internet infrastructure and, and broadband 5G. Uh, Graham, what about you? What do you think from the five priority uh, pledges from CBIA? What do you see as driving value? Actually, I'll say two, probably similar to Rob. Um, so workforce development, I spoke about that before. No need to go through it again. But the second one on urban renewal is, is really central. I mean, it, it's central um, to not just how we think about uh, Stanley Black and Decker, but if you think about our major cities, if you think about Hartford and otherwise, you know, if you look at where I am physically um, or virtually and where Chris is physically, that is absolutely central in terms of driving and putting in place the people that are needed for the future. So I think Rob said it well, the two are intertwined. We have to drive urban renewal and we need to use that to accelerate our workforce development. Oh, love it. Brian, what about you? What are you, what are you gonna pick for us? Yeah, well, actually the reality for me is that they all go hand in hand, similar to what Graham and, and Rob were just talking about. So for me at ABCO, obviously workforce development I've talked about, but the, the, the relationship that has with the small business relief and taxpayer ROI, they go hand in hand. Uh, and so that, that for me, I love this pledge. I love how it all works together. We've got facilities in, in different areas. So they, they, I don't think you can do one without the other, obviously. And uh, for me, workforce development with, with, with those other two are the, the key ones for HABCO. Listen, it has been an absolutely tremendous panel. I want to thank you guys uh, so, so uh, very much. For the latest COVID-19 information, visit CBIA.com. Follow us on Twitter at CBIA News and on Facebook. Call us anytime at 860-244-1900. Stay safe out there.